Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, I just wanted to, uh, before we get into the episode today, I wanted to talk a little bit about what is available at morethanonelesson.com right now. Uh, Bob reviewed uh, Sam Mendy's 1917, which is currently in theaters. Uh, Reed reviewed a lesser-known horror movie called The Sonata, which features, among other people, um, Rutger Hauer in one of his last films. Uh, Reed also posted his top 10 of the decade, so you can read all about that. Uh, Fear of God uh, did an episode about Star Wars. Bob also wrote about uh, The Mandalorian. So, uh, And then I also posted my own personal top 10 of the 2010s uh, on there as well. And uh, Salty Cinema is back with a uh, an interview with uh, Spencer T. Fulmar, uh, who just put out a movie called uh, Shooting Heroin, so sounds pretty intense. But uh, anyway, all of that is available at morethanonelesson.com. So uh, we're trying to have more content, uh, whether it be podcasts or reviews or whatever it is. Um, you know, we kind of took a break from the from really anything consistent for a while, and so I want to try and get uh, get more stuff on there for you. Uh, I also wanted to remind you that my book, Cinematic Suffering, is available. So if you go to morethanonelesson.com and click on store, uh, you'll be able to uh, purchase it for $15. I only ship within the United States right now. So uh, if you live overseas, I do apologize that I cannot get the book to you. But uh, it's uh, reviews of terrible movies. Um, and I should say that that's uh, that's meant to be a bit of a... A bit of a trick because I do not write negative reviews of terrible movies. The book is actually all about trying to find the positive uh, within the negative. So anyway, that's all at morethanonelesson.com. If you have any uh, questions uh, for me um, or any comments about the show, you can email me uh, at tyler at morethanonelesson.com. You can also like us on Facebook and you can follow me on Twitter at morelessons. So, all right. Uh, Today we are talking about Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, There's a lot being said about this movie. It came out several months ago at this point. And uh, at the time of recording, we're only a couple of days away from uh, the Academy Award nominations. And Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is already being talked about as like a major awards contender it will likely be nominated for picture director actor supporting actor screenplay editing cinematography art direction costumes like it's 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 everything um and uh it is it is 
practically guaranteed to win supporting actor for Brad Pitt, actually. Um, there's There are no guarantees, but that's been pretty consistent amongst uh, industry awards and critics' awards. And when you watch the movie, you definitely... On one hand, you totally understand why he is getting so much praise, but you might also wonder, it's just, you might just think it's, it's Brad Pitt. He's, he's quote unquote playing himself. So why is he getting so, you know, so much for this and not 12 monkeys or curious case of Benjamin Button or Moneyball or any of the other stuff he's been nominated for. Um, but we'll talk about that in a minute. So once upon a time in Hollywood is an interesting movie because uh, even big Tarantino fans didn't quite know how to take it. Um, some people, I know some people, uh, critics who genuinely hated it. They really did not respond to it on a couple of levels. One is that they felt that the film was a little bit meandering. Uh, and by a little bit, I mean immensely, uh, and then it speeds up for a very strange and unlikely ending. And a lot of people thought that the nature of that ending was not merely a jarring shift in tone, but that it was actually in poor taste. So there are a lot of people that don't like uh, the film. And especially if you look at what Tarantino has been doing for the last 10 years, starting with uh, Inglorious Bastards and then Django Unchained and then The Hateful Eight, He's been embracing genre, specifically the spaghetti western. And even though uh, Inglorious Bastards is a World War II movie, the tone of it is still very much spaghetti western. And so, uh, looking at that, and and his and those films are very high; uh, they're very heightened um, in their tone. Uh, the characters, even though I think that there's some wonderful acting and some amazing writing. Uh, the characters sometimes seem a little bit cartoonish, uh, or at least archetypical. And so, uh, but people really like that. I really like that. So then this film comes along, which up until a certain point actually tones things down quite a bit. Uh, it's still that Tarantino dialogue, but it just, everything's, everything seems so much more laid back. When people talk about the film being meandering, I agree, it is meandering. But I think that's on purpose. Uh, I, I don't think this is an instance of self-indulgence on the part of Quentin Tarantino, or uh, I don't think it's obliviousness on his part. I don't think it's... Uh, I, I can understand why somebody would watch this film and feel like Tarantino is refusing to make choices. Um, that's something... The concept of that I remember being introduced to from uh, the... Curtis Hansen film Wonder Boys uh, in in 2000 starring Michael Douglas where he's a he's a novelist who has written like a 2000 page novel and somebody reads it and it says it feels as though you're not making any choices not merely making the wrong choices you just refuse to make any choices and so the book just goes on and on and it's worth noting that uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is a is a pretty long film and so, again, I can understand why somebody would look at the, the pacing and the, in many ways, almost lack of plot and see that and, and feel that uh, Tarantino is not making any choices. I think he's making very specific choices, and I think he's making very introspective choices. Uh, it, this is called Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and it is trying to evoke a certain way of life that is unfamiliar to the vast majority of us. 
Um, but I will say, uh, much as it pains me to do so, if anybody here has ever seen um, uh, Entourage on HBO, uh, it's a show that uh, really overstayed its welcome, but for the first season or two, it had some good stuff going on. And it really captured the nature of a movie star's life, which is, you know, when you're on a project, you're working very, very hard and very long hours. But when you're not, you could be looking for work, but then there are also people that are looking for work on your behalf, uh, which frees you up to go and do whatever it is you want to do. You have a lot of money, and so you've got your friends, you have your entourage, and you can do whatever it is you want to do. And I don't know if, if anybody here has ever, I say here, you're not in the room with me. Uh, if any of you have ever had long stretches of time where you're not working, perhaps you're in between gigs or something like that. And so you find yourself with like three or four days in a row where you don't have anywhere, anywhere to be. So you come up with some errands that you have to do and things where, well, I want to get a little bit ahead in this or that. Uh, but there's really no sense of urgency to it. And when you would watch that show Entourage, and certainly when you're watching this, uh, there is no real sense of urgency to the life of Rick Dalton, played by Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, he is a, an actor who is sort of on the downturn of his career, and he is desperate to, to keep working and get good projects, but he is getting work consistently. Uh, and so... There's again, there is a sense of desperation, but still not that sense of urgency. Um, it's a very, it's, it's a bit of a tightrope because if you go too far in any direction, um, you're, you're not getting the mood quite right. And it's not merely the mood of Los Angeles. This is not once upon a time in Los Angeles. It's once upon a time in Hollywood and Hollywood. I remember, uh, the documentary, the kid stays in the picture. Uh, and in it, Robert Evans is quoting Robert town, the writer of Chinatown and, uh, the way Robert town described it, he goes, Oh, it's a, it's a state of mind. And Robert Evans is like, I, I can't put a state of mind on film. Uh, but I think he kind of did, uh, in that film as a producer. And here I think Tarantino really captures a vibe which is a word that I'm reluctant to use in any kind of artistic or analytical way. But there have been a lot of people that are critical of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood from a story standpoint. They say nothing happens or it takes too long for something to happen or whatever it is. And while I understand why someone would say that, I think you're I think they're thinking about the film in, in the wrong way. Uh, they're thinking about it from a story and plot standpoint, which totally makes sense. If you're looking at the last several Quentin Tarantino movies, they are very plot heavy with uh, very definitive story points. But here he is doing something very different. He is not so interested in story as he is a way of life and a state of mind and a general vibe. And I think the longer the movie is and the more it meanders, I think the more you act, he actually captures that vibe. Um, and I say that as someone who's never lived that actual life, but I do know some, I do know comedians. I do know actors. I know writers. And, uh, while they're not nearly as, uh, 
as successful or, or famous as the characters in this film, uh, the way they talk about their life, um, is very different than the way anybody else would talk about their life as far as their career, job security, and what they do from, from one day to the next. So, uh, I really do love the way the film is constructed and I really, you know, people could say that Tarantino is being lazy. I think he is shockingly disciplined in this film because he's holding himself back from what we have seen is uh, a somewhat recent tendency, which is to go big uh, and to go broad. And again, there's nothing wrong with that in the movies that he's making, but here he, he holds back and he creates uh, many more quiet moments um, and moments that one could say are even maybe a little bit realistic in the way characters are relating to one another. Uh, so along those lines, I would actually compare it in some ways to uh, his films of the 90s. Specifically, I would say Pulp Fiction and Jackie Brown. Now, those there are crime elements to those movies, and so of course there's going to be some heavy plot points, but just uh, thinking in terms of tone of those movies, uh, I definitely feel like there's this is more of a piece with those than Django Unchained or Inglorious Bastards. So I, I really love that part of it. And then as far as recreating Los Angeles at, in the 1960s, well, I wasn't in Los Angeles in the 1960s, but I live here now and I've lived here for a while and I've driven to a lot of the places, uh, not as it featured in the film, not as a function of the film, just throughout my life. I've been in the, in a lot of those areas. Um, and you know, I, I, I never like to necessarily say this, but I, I think it actually does apply, uh, in this case that, you know, certain movies, the way they're made, you can tell, uh, a lot about the director's view of that place. Uh, if you look at a film like Manhattan or really any number of of Woody Allen movies, uh, they could be described as a love letter to New York. And I would agree with that. And here I, I, I genuinely feel like this is a love letter to Los Angeles and Hollywood and what it what it is and what it represents. Um, and that actually gets me into I'll, I'll get to the, our, our two main characters in a moment, but that gets me to the character, uh, of Sharon Tate played by Margot Robbie. Um, Sharon Tate was a real person. Uh, it's interesting being a, a, a college professor right now because, uh, Tarantino is one of the few directors whose name people recognize. And so my students went to go see the film when it came out, but they didn't really know much about the history. Uh, and so, a lot of them were just flabbergasted by some of the some of choices that looked to them to be particularly directionless. But actually, when you know the story of Sharon Tate and the Manson family and all of that, uh, those are the few instances where it feels like uh, stuff is being propelled forward. But uh, we spend so much time with Sharon Tate and she's not really 
talking. Uh, that that was a, a bone of contention for some people as they somebody just took it on uh, themselves to count the number of lines that Sharon Tate has as sort of a way of saying like, oh yeah, see Tarantino uh, is not giving any good roles to women. Uh, obviously, I think that's idiotic because you can't simply count the lines um, because there are some characters in movies that uh, are genuinely mute. Uh, there's a wonderful uh, film in the Woody Allen. Uh, there's a wonderful character in the Woody Allen film, Sweet and Low Down, who is indeed mute and uh, played by Samantha Morton. And it's a great performance nominated for an Oscar. Uh, and so you could count the number of lines and you would come up with zero. Uh, but that doesn't mean there's nothing to the character. And so here, the character of Sharon Tate is really the vibe of Los Angeles, the vibe of Hollywood and, and the optimistic aspect of it. We get plenty of the cynicism elsewhere. The idea that the, this bill, this business chews you up and spits you out. We get that, uh, from other characters, but Sharon is still pretty, she's, it's still pretty early in her career. She goes to uh, a theater, um, called the Bruin. It's, uh, it's, down by UCLA, which is where I got my master's a, a couple years ago. And so like seeing her walk around that area is, is, is amazing. Um, cause I was there as well. And so, uh, so a, a film that she is in and is not even really a lead is playing there. And so she says, Hey, I'm in the movie. Can I, can I go watch it? And, uh, the, the staff is excited that she's there, but they also don't recognize her because it is still pretty early in her career. And so you see the way that she behaves, you see the way that she reacts, and everything is still so fresh and new, and it makes her seem not necessarily naive, uh, but innocent. And it's that innocence, it's the promise of Hollywood, as and it's being played out in her life. And uh, I really love... Margot Robbie's performance. I think she's doing great work because yes, Sharon Tate here is definitely representative of something, but Margot Robbie doesn't play her like that. She doesn't play her as, uh, as an allegory. No, she plays her as a character who is still experiencing all of these moments. And so Margot Robbie plays her, uh, in a very, in a very lived in believable way. Um, it's uh, early on. There was talk of Margot Robbie being nominated for supporting actress for the film. Uh, it's looking like that's not going to happen, especially because she played a supporting role in the movie Bombshell. And so uh, it, it looks like if she's going to be nominated, it'll be for that. I haven't seen Bombshell. I'm sure she's great. But I think there's something very, very special about what she's doing in this film. And, I, and it goes beyond the sheer, just the, the simple number of lines that she has. Um, speaking, uh, moving from her to, uh, our two leads. And I would say that they are leads, uh, regardless of how things are working out, uh, as far as awards go, because I certainly know that studios don't like to submit two people in one category, especially if it's a lead category. Um, for example, I know that whatever, I forget what studio put out Ford V Ferrari, but, uh, they were pushing Matt Damon and Christian Bale for best lead actor. And Christian Bale has gotten a little bit of recognition here and there, but neither of those guys are in the larger conversation. And I think it's partially because, uh, they're canceling each other out. So, the studio is is pushing uh, DiCaprio for lead and Brad Pitt for supporting, um, and 
if if push comes to shove, I would say, yeah, that's probably about right. But I genuinely do think that they're both the lead. Um, but I do want to talk about uh, Leonardo DiCaprio first. He plays the character uh, Rick Dalton, who is an actor who had a successful TV show and since then has is guesting on other TV shows. People recognize him. He is still fairly popular, but he definitely is. He's on his way to being a has been. Um, at this point, he has just as many stories about the roles that he almost got, but didn't, uh, as the ones that he did. So, uh, what's funny is that he, he's played as this, as you know, this, this kind of tough guy from Missouri. Uh, that's definitely the persona, uh, as far as the, the types of characters that Rick has played, but he is still a Hollywood actor whose career is on the decline. And so he plays him, uh, DiCaprio plays him as extremely neurotic and con in constant need of reassurance. Uh, he gets emotional. He actually like cries at the notion that his career is over. Uh, and, but then, uh, there's a wonderful moment where he goes on set. He's, he's, he's going to be the heavy in, uh, in the pilot of a, a, a new Western and the way the way he is on set, he's actually a little bit insecure, a little bit shy, but when it comes time to actually play the part, he can absolutely do it and does a great job with it. Uh, the character of Rick Dalton is pretty extroverted, um, or at least very expressive. So, uh, you know, when he messes up his lines, uh, he gets very upset with himself, more upset than anybody else is getting with him. Uh, and, when you see the way he treats himself when he's alone, it's, it, it is very much, it fits in with what people kind of think of, uh, when they think of Hollywood actors, that they're petulant and childish. Um, but at a, at the core is a, a desire to do well and, a, and a, a deep insecurity and a worry that they're not doing well. Uh, and one thing that, that I don't know if it's in the script, um, I could, I could see it being a situation where, uh, DiCaprio and Tarantino sort of worked it out on their own that, uh, the character of Rick Dalton has a, a very slight stutter, but it's definitely there. And something that I remember hearing, uh, in an interview with James Earl Jones is that, and, and on this show, we talked with, um, uh, Morgan Lott, who made a documentary called this is stuttering and he himself ha has a stutter. And so, uh, I've heard this from, from different sources that, uh, if you are singing, and this is something that I think played into the King's speech as well. If you're singing, uh, the stutter won't show up, but also if you are saying other people's lines that in, in the case, I think there's something that James Earl Jones said, uh, you know, this is the guy who did the voice of Darth Vader and Mufasa. Ne you would never think that he has an actual stutter, uh, but he does. And he was able to sort of overcome it. And a lot of that had to do with, with him being an actor and getting so accustomed to saying other people's lines. Like for him, there seemed to be this instance where, uh, where as his brain is forming, phrases and paragraphs, uh, there are just these little hitches, but if he's just saying what somebody is giving him to say, it goes away. And so we see that with Rick Dalton, that he definitely has that stutter, but when the time comes for him to play a part, no problem at all. Um, and so I, I just like little moments like that. It, it adds specificity to the character. 
and he does have uh, this an accent uh, that you would say is just sort of a southern accent. And he references that, uh, hey, you know, if things don't work out here, we're going to we're on our way back to Missouri. Um, and having lived in Missouri, uh, I think his accent's probably pretty good. Like, I don't think it's I don't think you would identify it as a Texas accent. Cause like I said, it's Southern ish, but not, a, not the deep South or anything like that. So, uh, I, somebody like DiCaprio, I'm, I'm reluctant to say, Oh, this is a career best performance or that's a career best performance, especially cause I think he's done some really great work in the last 10 years. Um, for a while, I said that uh, his work in Django Unchained as as the heavy, um, I thought that that was his best performance because he's just doing stuff that I haven't seen him do. But then the next year, he was in Wolf of Wall Street and he does he does wonderful work there. Uh, he's very he is very good in The Revenant. That's the movie that he won Best Actor for, and uh, I do like his performance quite a bit. But aside from the, the physical demands of it, and there are a lot of them. Um, and I, and you do see some internal struggle and some very intense stuff. And so I'm not, I'm not saying that that's a, that it's a bad performance at all. Um, but I do think that what he's required to do with somebody like a Scorsese or a Quentin Tarantino, I think that they have stretched him a little bit more, um, because, you know, quiet smoldering intensity is something that DiCaprio, uh, perfected in the, in the, uh, late nineties, early two thousands. So as, as difficult as the Revenant undoubtedly was, I don't think it was as big a challenge from an acting standpoint, uh, from an internal standpoint as something like, uh, once upon a time in Hollywood where, there has to be a real sadness to the character while often simultaneously being very funny. Um, and so I do want to pivot over to Brad Pitt's character. He plays Cliff Booth, who is, uh, Rick Dalton's stunt double. And as a result of that, they have been fast friends for a long time with Cliff essentially acting as his just all purpose assistant, uh, his gopher, his repairman, all of that stuff. And looking at that, you do sometimes wonder if, if Rick is taking advantage of, of Cliff, if he's, if he's taking him for, for granted, um, and that he just sees him as a hired hand. Uh, but I don't think it's that. I think they, they do genuinely enjoy spending time with one another. Uh, but I think Cliff also sees the writing on the wall and he knows where his money is coming from and all of that. One of the things that I like about Cliff is that he is, and you hear this about stunt doubles and stunt men. You hear that they are actually very pragmatic, very down to earth because they have to be, uh, the nature of their job is very careful and very realistic and that it, uh, that kind of permeates the rest of their personality. And so the way Cliff carries himself, which is very, with tremendous confidence, um, and tremendous competence. Uh, it's, it's a very, it's a very believable performance. And, and I think it'd be easy for people to say, well, Brad Pitt's just playing himself cause he's not putting on any kind of accent or anything like that. And as you know, if you've listened to this show for any length of time, you know that, uh, I don't like that criticism because, uh, 
anybody who says that I would challenge them to go in front of a camera. And this is not a situation where it's just like, like, Hey, acting is hard. You couldn't do it. What I'm saying is most people would acknowledge that acting is hard and they would look at certain performances that require more of a transformation and say, yes, that's difficult. But what, you know, a Jack Nicholson or a Denzel Washington or George Clooney or a Julia Roberts or often these big movie stars, like, well, they're, they're just playing themselves. And it's like, that can actually be more difficult to do because if you've got an accent that you can hide behind or some kind of physical affectation, you can distance yourself from the character. But when it's just, when it's quote unquote you, um, there's nothing that you can hide behind. And so you just have to reconcile you as a person and as a performer with the emotions that the character is feeling and you have to sell them without any of these other things to rely on. And so that's why, uh, performances that would seem to be the easiest, uh, the fact that they look so easy is what is, is what shows me how difficult they are. So, um, so Brad Pitt, uh, he really understands Cliff Booth and the way he conveys him is something that is tremendous fun to watch. And I do specifically in talking about his performance, but also just the filmmaking in general, I want to talk about when Cliff goes to Spawn Ranch. So for those familiar with, uh, maybe for for those unfamiliar with uh, the details of the Manson family, um, in the, uh, in uh, the valley uh, up in the hills, there was uh, a place called Spawn Ranch, S P A H N, I believe, um, and it was uh, it was it looked like a little uh, old west city. There were foothills and all of that, and and uh, movies would shoot there, TV shows would shoot there, um, and the guy who owned it, I think his name was uh, George Spawn. Is that uh, yeah, George Spawn? Um, and so after a while, it just, it wasn't really, uh, usable. Uh, it was in disrepair. And so nobody really went there anymore, but, uh, Charles Manson and his followers, uh, wound up, they, they set up shop there and they sort of manipulated George Spahn who lived on the property, uh, to just let them be there. So there comes a moment when Brad Pitt hears about Spawn Ranch and he, and he knew George. And so he is not sure exactly what's going on, but he's pretty sure that these young hippie kids are manipulating him or exploiting him or whatever it is. So he goes to Spawn Ranch and Charles Manson isn't there. Uh, this other character Tex, who's kind of a sec, the second in command, he's not there. Uh, it's, it's all of these young women and a few young men. Um, and they, they operate as one big group. And so, and they're all much younger than, than Cliff. And so as he walks around, Brad Pitt does such a great job with it. Like if you just pay attention to his eyes and he's often wearing sunglasses, but you can see his eyes behind it. And if you look at his, his, uh, body language, he is, as he's walking around again, seeming very casual, he is nonetheless assessing the situation as I imagine a stuntman would have to do, uh, to, to do their job. Well, he is looking for any potential danger and he's trying to figure out exactly what's going on and he doesn't know, but he can't let on that. He doesn't know because I think he realizes pretty fast that he may not, he may not think it's a cult, but he definitely sees some, that something is going on here. And these young people are followers. And so 
all he has to really do is convey confidence and authority and what's more, I'd say effortless confidence and authority. And these people will let him do whatever he wants to do. They'll fight up. They'll fight against him a little bit. But again, if they're followers, he needs to convey that I am not a follower. I am a leader and you will tell me what I want to know. And you know, that is it. That's, that's a lot to deal with in one scene, all of which is more about how he carries himself than delivering specific lines or anything like that. Uh, and then the way Tarantino, he just, he just lets that scene play out and it's nice and long because everybody, nobody's saying exactly what they want to say. And everybody's trying, you know, the, the, the Manson family is trying to figure out this guy, this interloper, and he is trying to figure out what is going on. And then eventually he, uh, he actually meets up with George who says everything is fine. And so Cliff is like, all right, I guess, I guess it's time to go. But, uh, but the way that the, the patience with which Tarantino, uh, unfolds that scene is just so beautiful and so tense while never really seeming that way. Um, it, it tonally, it is, uh, uh just a, a masterwork. Like I can't even totally put my finger on the specific decisions that, that went into making it work so very well. It's one of the best pieces of filmmaking of 2019 and one of the best pieces of filmmaking of Tarantino's career. And the way that Brad Pitt just carries that scene to me, that is how he gets the best supporting actor Oscar. And granted he hasn't gotten it yet. He might not, it might go to Joe Pesci or somebody else, but it's, it's, it's almost a guarantee. It's going to be Brad Pitt. Um, and I'm fine with that. I'm absolutely fine with that. So, um, so there's a lot more to talk about as far as, you know, there, there's, it's the film has a great cast. I think a lot of characters are uh, really interesting and really well played. I wanted to mention, uh, Julia Butters, who plays a character, Trudy Frazier, uh, who, uh, she's like a little eight year old girl. She encounters Rick Dalton, uh, on the set of this, uh, this, uh, TV pilot and the way, and she's just very, she seems wise beyond her years, very well-spoken. And so her name is, is Trudy Frazier and, you know, she's young, well-spoken, all of that. Uh, she's clearly meant to evoke Jodie Foster. Um, I don't know if you've seen, uh, Martin Scorsese's taxi driver, but, uh, Jodie Foster was in it very young. She was like 13 years old. Um, and she just seemed so, she seemed like a 43 year old woman or something like that. Uh, just because she was just so confident and so sure of herself. And that is how Julia Butters, uh, plays that role. And so, you know, one of the neat things about this film, when you're a movie fan is you're able to pick out in some cases like, Oh, there's, um, there's Steve McQueen and there's, Roman Polanski. So like, these are real, you know, real life people. And here's the approximation of them. Uh, but then there's somebody like this, uh, this Trudy Frazier character who is meant to evoke, uh, Jodie Foster, but not actually be her. So, uh, and the way that she reacts to, um, DiCaprio's character, like the two have these, a couple of really wonderful scenes, uh, and, yeah, the, the supporting cast, you know, in some cases it, 
the supporting cast is Al Pacino. And then in other cases, it's Margaret Qualley. So, you know, differing levels of fame, but uh, everybody is just, you know, knocking it out of the park as far as creating uh, a consistent tone and believing that all of these characters exist in the same world. So, okay. Spoilers. All right. We're getting into spoilers now. So if you haven't seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I would say hold off because this is the kind of spoiler that you cannot possibly see coming. Uh, although I, I'll, I'll admit, uh, knowing what I know about Tarantino and the idea that this is he's telling a story, though Rick Dalton and Cliff Booth are not real people, Sharon Tate was. Um, and so Tarantino would, would seem to be telling that story. And knowing who he is and then having seen Inglorious Bastards, I had a feeling that the 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 climax of this film was going to deviate dramatically from the real life events. And uh, I was right. I was I was not right. I wasn't quite right enough because it's such a jarring shift in tone. Uh, It goes from this very lackadaisical um, comedy drama with occasional moments of suspense into comically over the top action. Um, and it's tremendously fun, but it also, it just, it feels so strange. And I know a lot of people that had a problem with that shift. Um, so again, I imagine many of you have seen it, uh, but I'll, I'll, I'll talk about it. So in real life, the, some of Charles Manson's followers broke into uh, Roman Polanski's mansion, Roman Polanski, writer, director. Um, and he was married to Sharon Tate, who was this young actors, uh, actress, and uh, she was pregnant. They had a number of house guests. Roman Polanski was out of the country at the time, I believe. And so, uh, so, so these, I believe, three members of the Manson family broke in and killed everybody in the mansion. That's the real story. Uh, and, and killed them quite brutally, uh, on orders from Charles Manson, who said to make it look as horrible as possible. So, um, I believe they used knives and they stabbed Sharon Tate and JC bring in these various other people many, many, many times. It was a really, it was a really depraved, monstrous act so much. So in fact, that, uh, when these people were caught, they obviously went to jail, but Charles Manson also went to jail, even though he wasn't actually there. Um, the idea of him having brainwashed these kids to do this terrible thing, like people were so upset, understandably so, by the brutal, uh, brutality of this crime that they wanted to put away anyone even tangentially uh, related to it, not to suggest that Charles Manson was tangentially related to it. He was directly related to it, but he wasn't even on the premises. Um, so that's the real story in this film. Uh, the people that they pull up in their car and they're going to go, they're going to break into that house. And then they happen upon Rick Dalton who yells at them for, uh, being parked, uh, in their crappy car in his nice neighborhood. And, uh, so they decide they're going to change their plans. So the fictitious character of Rick Dalton has now intervened directly in real life and has changed the course of events because now they're going to go to his house and they're going to take him out and cliff 
and Rick's wife, and that's what they're going to do. So they go in. Uh, at this point, Rick is uh, uh, drunk and maybe passed out in a uh, on a raft in his pool with headphones on, so he can't hear anything. So these three people come in, and they confront Cliff. And he proceeds to destroy them. Uh, he, with the help of his trusty dog, uh, he bashes this one girl in the face many, many, many times. He stabs people um, and throws a, can- a full can of dog food right into the nose of this other person who just starts to go crazy. And then she runs outside, startling Rick Dalton, who goes into his. Uh, his pool house and pulls out a flamethrower that had been previously established as something that he had used on one of his films. And he apparently kept and at the first sign of trouble, it's where he goes and he lights this woman very violently on fire. Um, so no one is dead except the people that came there to, to kill people. Uh, Sharon Tate is not, not only is she not dead, she didn't even really know that there was any that there was any danger, uh, and so the the film ends with uh, Sharon talking with Rick and inviting him over to hang out, uh, which is something that he really wanted. You know, he's like, "Oh, I'm living right next door to Roman Polanski, this famous director, and maybe he they maybe he can help me out." But he just feels like on the outs as opposed to being with this cool. Uh, this cool Polish director and his attractive young wife and all of that. So, um, so it ends with, with Dal- with Rick being welcomed in to this, this community and, and all is right with the world and the movie is over. And I, again, if you've seen *Inglorious bastards, you know that, uh, Hitler's end is different than it is, uh, than it was in real life. In real life, he killed himself and here, <laughs> He was very violently sh- machine gunned in the face, uh, bringing an an, uh, an early end to World War II. So, what's interesting is uh, I don't really know of anybody that had a problem with that alternate ending in *Glorious Bastards*. But I think with the ca- in the case of something like *Once Upon a Time in Hollywood*, because it's just because the victims were so specific um, and the event was so iconic and specific, um, that people thought it was disrespectful, um, to the memory of Sharon Tate and the other people that died to not only alter the, the actual story, but to alter it in such a way so that it is over the top and ridiculous and funny and, and insanely violent. Uh, people thought that like, no, this is not, you're, you're putting a happy ending on a, on a story that is not happy. And so they didn't like that, but then they also really didn't like the tonal shift, uh, of the film. Uh, I myself, I mean, it certainly sticks out like a sore thumb. It doesn't fit with the rest of the movie. Um, and after it's over the, the initial tone of quiet, amusing introspection, uh, that returns, as uh, Rick is now talking to Sharon Tate, but for about seven minutes there at the end, it's like something out of a whole other film. And I love it. I, I really enjoy it. And the th- 
so it's it's fun and very satisfying in the moment that these uh, that these stupid uh, cult members um, are getting what's coming to them. Even more satisfying because we know what they actually did accomplish in real life. Uh, but it did make me wonder why did Tarantino do this? Why did he make such a strange decision tonally, uh, narratively? And I have some thoughts on that. But in order to talk about them, uh, I'm going to bring up our companion film, which is from many years ago, almost a hundred years ago. It is F.W. Murnau's The Last Laugh, uh, which came out in 1924. It is a German expressionist film. I adore it. I always have. And it is a, a very simple story. It actually, when you think of German expressionism, and I have to assume you do, uh, you tend to think in terms of horror, fantasy, suspense, this kind of thing. Uh, the Last Laugh is not that. Visually, it is still treated that way, but it is actually a pretty simple story of this guy who works as the the doorman at a very swanky hotel, and he is the he is the face of the hotel. And even though he it's just a, a working class job, he's got his nice uniform, and he is the first person to greet these rich and famous people as they come in. So it is it is a it's a job of prominence, but. The character is getting a little bit older now. He's played by uh, Emil Yannings, and I think Quentin Tarantino would find it hilarious that I have chosen this as our companion film because Emil Yannings notoriously uh, did not leave Germany when the Nazis came in, uh, as a lot of other, as a lot of writers and actors and directors did. He stayed there and acted in some Nazi propaganda films. And this is a guy who I think had won an Oscar, who's considered one of the best actors uh, of his time. Uh, I have theories as to why. I don't think it's because he was a Nazi sympathizer. I think it's because when sound film came along, he was not able to adapt to English. And so he was, he couldn't go anywhere. So I think he was stuck in Germany because it was the only language he could speak. And I think maybe he, maybe he was a Nazi sympathizer. Maybe he was an anti-Semite. I really don't know. But knowing what I know about the rise of sound film and the way it changed a lot of people's careers, I could definitely see that being the case, uh, for Emil Yonings. But anyway, uh, in Inglorious Bastards, uh, Yonings is depicted, um, as being like close friends with Goebbels. He's, he's depicted in not a very positive light, which again is understandable. Um, history has not been kind to Emil Yonings. And again, I get it, but, uh, but I do think it'd be, I think Tarantino would find it very funny that this is what I have chosen as the companion film to his, to, uh, his movie. Uh, but anyway, great performance by Yonings. Uh, it's very tragic because, this doorman is getting older and part of the job is carrying people's bags and he can't quite do it anymore. And so eventually he is replaced. Again, this is a, it's, it, this is essentially a working class job, but it, it is a high profile job and it is an important job. And so he's determined to be too old to, uh, to have it. So he is moved 
to a much less respectable job. He works in the bathroom now, uh, handing people towels and all of that. So to go from being the face of a respectable hotel to being the guy hanging out by the toilets as you wash your hands, uh, that is quite a step down. And he is a He's embarrassed. He's ashamed. And what's interesting is that I'm pretty sure that the people in his life, like his wife and family and neighbors, I think they themselves uh, kind of fulfill his his deepest insecurities. Um, and now that and now the more I talk about it, the more I realize that his situation is similar in many ways to Rick Dalton's. But anyway, um, but yeah, they seem to lose respect for him now that he's no longer the hotel doorman. And so he becomes very desperate to get his old job back or get some type of uh, respectable job and just get regain his status in the community. And it wasn't even that amazing of a status, but it was better than where he is now, which is, again, working in a bathroom. Um, so all of this is going along. It's it's visually gorgeous. Uh, like I said, the nature of, of German expressionism is that uh, very, uh, very high contrast, you know, uh, very dark shadows, unusual, uh, art direction and strange camera movements all to put you sort of in the psychological state of the main character. Um, and in a movie like Nosferatu or the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, the main characters are terrified and they feel like every, and they're paranoid and they feel like the world is out to get them. And so the world is indeed designed to replicate that. Um, so in this case, you have a character who he's not living out some kind of weird fantasy. He's not dealing with vampires or, or crazy people. He's simply dealing with his own fears of irrelevance. And so the film is designed visually to kind of play that up and play up the loneliness that he now feels. Uh, it really is. I can't recommend it highly enough. I really love uh, The Last Laugh 1924. But there comes a moment uh, where there is a jarring shift and suddenly uh, the hotel doorman comes into uh, a great deal of money. And suddenly he doesn't care about being the hotel doorman anymore because now he's the guy that can go in and have the door opened for him. He can go in and sit at the restaurant and, all, and his his former boss and the people that, that uh, took him for granted, now they, uh, you know, now they're kissing up to him. And he, so he's sitting at this in the, at, this nice restaurant. Everybody's fawning over him because he has so much money now and he's just enjoying the good life. He no longer has to prove himself. Everything is fine. And it just comes so far out of left field. Uh, there are people that, uh, look at, at the situation. They say like, okay, clearly the studio wanted him now to take this very sad, um, story and give it a happy ending. And Murnau chose almost as a little screw you to the studio to be like, all right, I'm not just going to go with a happy ending. I'm going to go with the happiest ending. Uh, so much so that the film would eventually be called the last laugh, uh, which is to say, you know, the hotel doorman, he's, he's the one that got the last laugh on everybody else. So like this ending is, it, it wasn't an afterthought. It, it, became sort of the defining aspect of the movie is this jarring tonal shift uh, that could be seen as just absolute fantasy. Maybe it's inside the mind of the character, but it is presented to us as the next step of the story, the final step of the story. So the question then becomes looking at 
this strange ending at the end of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and then this this uh, fantasy, uh, you know, wish fulfillment ending in The Last Laugh. Uh, the question is not merely what were the directors trying to do with it, but what do we do with it? Um, it's th- there's such strange decisions, and. I think you could look at the choice to have both of these go the way we, the audience, so badly wish they would go um, as a cynical choice. This idea of, like I was saying, you know, the way Murnau may or may not have approached the studio was like, oh, you want a happy ending? All right, here, here's the, here's the happiest ending. Uh, And maybe Tarantino was thinking in that way as well, though the studio would not uh, dare to question uh, or dictate to him what he should do with his film. Uh, but there, it is possible to look at it as, as its own type of wish fulfillment, its own type of maybe even pandering to the audience. But I generally, I don't think it's that. I certainly don't think it's that with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, and as I myself was contemplating that ending, I, and, and really when you think about the, the, the ending for Last Laugh as well, what I came away from was this thought of like, this was, it's such a change. It's so different and it's so over the top and ridiculous. And I had this thought of like, well, you know what? The violence that actually happened was also over the top. It was also ridiculous and it, but it actually happened. And so when it comes right down to it, violence was going to happen that night anyway. So for a moment, for just for, for the two hours and 45 minutes that the movie is, we're going to talk about, we're going to, we're going to imagine that night the way we wished it had happened, where the people that are looking to hurt you, the people that are looking to hurt Sharon Tate and her unborn child and the other people who just happened to be at her house that night, that they're the ones that get hurt. They're the ones that get, to use the word, destroyed. Um, we know, I mean, if you know the story, you know, but we know how it ended and it wasn't a good ending. It was cold, hard, brutal, awful reality. And what Tarantino is ultimately saying, this is something that people said about Inglorious Bastards. He is somebody, you know, movies are his religion, a hundred percent. And he sees in movies, he finds the possibility of redemption and the possibility of, I'm going to, this is going to sound weird. The possibility of heaven, by which I mean the way things should be the way things were meant to be before people came along and screwed everything up. And when I, and even though he's doing it through this concept of redemptive violence, whatever it is, um, when we look back at the Holocaust and World War II, it is infuriating that, it's infuriating it happened no matter what. But in this world, we, we want justice. 
You know, if something's bad, if, if something bad is going to happen, we at least want to be able to make sense of it in some way. And that usually means we punish the person or people that did it. We want Hitler to be machine gunned in the face. We don't want him to rob us of that justice by killing himself. We want the Manson family to be uh, blasted with a flamethrower and attacked by a dog. That's what we want. We don't want these poor people to just be stabbed multiple times for no real reason. And, you know, I, I tend to like movies that are more, a a bit more realistic, even the fantasy movies that I like, you know, like alien, uh, or jaws, uh, are rooted in a type of reality, a recognizable type of reality where the characters react the way we would, uh, if we were in that situation. Uh, so those tend to be the movies that I like, but I also, Increasingly, as I get older, I subscribe to the idea that because movies are 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 fake, I hate to put it that way, um, but because they are fantasy, because they are an, an aspect of creativity and imagination, they can be whatever we want them to be. They can be whatever the director wants them to be. Uh, if, if Quentin Tarantino wants to create the world that we should be living in for a couple hours, knowing full well that reality is going to be waiting for us when it's over, uh, he's going to do that. And as someone who, yes, I have, I have my own religion. Uh, it's called Christianity, but I also adore, just adore movies and I adore stories and and artistic expression and allegory. And by the way, within my religion, um, I think, I think that's a religion that, that uh, adores those things as well. Um, Jesus didn't only speak in sermons. He spoke in parables, uh, as well. And sometimes the parables didn't work out for everybody. Sometimes they did. Uh, and they were meant to get us to think about the world as it should be and acknowledge that, that we need something bigger than ourselves. Um, and I don't, I certainly don't think that Quentin Tarantino is attempting to, uh, to get us yearning for God, but I think he is getting us yearning for perfection or paradise or the ideal, whatever you want to call it, the way things should be and the way we all wish it were instead of the sad, sad reality we, that we are living in. And I don't mean to be too bleak about it, but when you look at stuff like the Holocaust, when you look at stuff like the Manson killings, when you look at something like in the last laugh, the idea of an older person being told by society that they are no longer relevant and that they have no purpose to serve in this world, it's, it, it can be quite crushing And when you look at these endings, yes, they can seem tacked on, but it's an acknowledgement by the director that we sometimes need hope. We need, even as, even if it's over the top and ridiculous, we need to have an understanding of what, what it is we actually want and what we want the world to look like. And it needs to be visualized for us and played out for us so that we have an idea of what that is. And it just got me thinking about 
it got me thinking about the promises that come out of Christianity. Um, and I'm sure that I'm sure there are people that would say, you know, this is a bit of a stretch, but these are the things that I thought about while I was watching, uh, once upon a time in Hollywood, I saw it twice and this definitely came more out of the second viewing than the first. Um, but throughout the Bible, um, sometimes it's, you know, the Israelites, it's a, it's a specific people and other times it's all of us. Um, but throughout, um, there is an acknowledgement of the sad, broken, sinful world that we live in. And then the promise of reconciliation, of redemption, of renewal, and the, the return to a place that makes sense, a place where justice does prevail and goodness prevails. And then we don't have to just dwell forever in the sad chaos of life that we see with the Manson family and, and that sort of thing. So, uh, I do have a number of, of Bible verses to read, but I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to hold off on most of them. Um, and I'm going to focus on Revelation 21 verses three and four. And I've said, and I, I've quoted this verse before, um, multiple times. In fact, uh, the, the older I get and the more life I experience, the more resonant this verse is. Uh, so, uh, the verse, uh, these verses say, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And, you know, I also, so just to, I'll, I'll also say Jeremiah 29, 11 through 14, Romans 8, 28, second Corinthians four verses eight through 18. Uh, those are the other verses that I was going to read. You, you're welcome to look them up on your own, but you know, revelations, I mean, anybody that has read, uh, revelation knows that it's crazy. It's just a crazy book. Um, nobody really understands exactly how to take it. Uh, there are certainly uh, contextual clues and cultural clues based on when it was written about what it might mean. But at the end, the, the concept, uh, at the end is ultimately that God will prevail and with God comes truth and love and reason and justice and all of the thi- all the things that we yearn for in this life. Um, the reason that we like these endings is because they allow us to pretend, uh, if only for a few minutes, that all is right with the world. Um, we know it's not the truth, uh, no matter how badly we wish it were. We know what the world is. It is a cruel place uh, where evil is allowed to flourish and the weak are exploited. But these movies allow us to catch a glimpse uh, of the world as it should be. Um, You know, to go back to what I was saying a moment ago, where the good are rewarded um, and the evil are punished. And we can revel in the justice and the mercy on display, knowing that the real world um, 
you know, which is full of anger and confusion. It's going to be there for us when we leave. Um, and it can actually, it can, that can actually be kind of depressing because we're shown a fantasy, but we know the harsh reality. But as Christians, we have hope for the future. We believe that there will ultimately be peace and love and acceptance and that evil will be engulfed in flame. <laughs> uh, we know that God will make all things right. And eventually we won't have to fantasize anymore. It will be the reality. The sad, the sadness that comes when we look at <laughs> once the ending of once upon a time in Hollywood or the last laugh, the sadness that comes with that, knowing that that's not what happened. That's not the case anymore. The reality that we will be living in is the right one. And what I would say is, and this is something that comes out of like Jesus parables as well. Um, it suggests that like in the meantime, maybe we look at that promise, the promise of justice, the promise of equality and forgiveness and building each other up. We look at that and then we look at these over the top fantasy sequences and we work towards making the world a slightly more gracious, loving, just place in the meantime. We know that there's only so much we can do, but when there's a promise of that, you can either say, well, Hey, it's, you know, things are going to go well eventually. So, uh, I'm just going to sit around and wait for that. But the Bible specifically says that's not what we're supposed to do because we have no idea when that's going to be. So the most we can do is try to bring that to earth as much as we can. And then when everything is eventually made right, either in the larger sense of, of the world or just in our own lives, as we move on and, uh, meet God, uh, we can be happy that we did what we could and be so excited and revel in the right ending. The one that we always wanted. So weird stuff to be talking about with once upon a time in Hollywood, but that's one of the things that I love about movies is you never quite know what they're going to make you think of. And maybe the director himself did not anticipate this at all. Uh, but I think, I think Tarantino, he might not have expected me to go to the Bible, but the idea of movies having this kind of power is something I think he believes in a hundred percent. So anyway, feel free uh, to write any questions or comments that you have about this episode in the comment section at more than one lesson.com. Uh, if you have anything to say to me, uh, in private, uh, Tyler, more than one lesson.com is where you can find me. And, uh, of course you can like us on Facebook. Please do so. Actually, you can follow me on Twitter at more lessons, uh, and be sure to go to the website and just check out everything that is there. Um, you know, we only have a, we only have a few contributors, uh, but I really like the stuff that they've been doing. So, uh, do check that out. Um, and I think that's it. I, I don't know what the next episode is going to be. I'm thinking it will be Joker. It will either be Joker or the Irishman. I don't know yet. Um, 
but it's going to be one of those. So, uh, and if you have any suggestions, uh, you're always welcome to email me or tweet at me or whatever it is you want to do. So, uh, in the meantime, thank you everybody for listening and I'll get you next time. Bye.